You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So welcome everyone to another episode of Changing Reality. Welcome one, welcome all. We're so excited to have you here on a very special episode actually. But before we begin, for all of you who maybe this is your first time tuning into Changing Reality, where have you been for so long? This is the place where all the magic happens. But anyway, <laughs> Changing Reality is a show that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are in essence changing their own reality. So through this show, we'll be interviewing and hanging out with social change makers, entrepreneurs, business owners, uh, industry leaders, to pioneers of arts, music, business, and so much more from across the world, and many of them who've actually spent some time here on the Penn campus as well. And by hearing these inspiring stories on how they began, how they've grown in their journeys, and how they today have actually changed reality through the work that they've done, hopefully we'll get a little bit of snippets of inspiration that we can use to apply in our own lives as well. And I wanted to do this show simply because I feel like there are a lot of people out there who are doing phenomenal things and making waves in the lives of those around them. And I'm super passionate about learning those stories so that we can all grow from these experiences as well, so that we can see that successful people, people out there who are changing the world, once started where we were at the world point too. And just to show you how important I find the power of stories, personally, I actually founded and run a youth movement called Ascendance in Malaysia, which is where I'm from, that today collaborates not just the Malaysian, uh, today collaborates with not just the Malaysian Ministry of Education, but works with 28 over countries to help provide an alternative education platform for any student who wants to change their own reality. So we work with students from elementary all the way up to college through various sessions, programs, experiential learning activities, and even projects that help them discover their passion, learn about themselves and the world around them, different industries, through project-based learning so that they can start figuring out the things that they're good at and start their own careers while they're still in school. And to date, we've been fortunate to work with over 35,000 students in 970 communities and have incubated countless number of student-run projects, social enterprises, and much more run by students aged 8 to 25 years old. And the basis of all of this is stories. It's kind individuals who spend their time to share their experiences with people out there who may not get the chance to hear otherwise. And through these stories, it actually sets the foundation for others to grow upon, for others to see what limitless things that they can do. And that's how Ascendance started. And today I hope Changing Reality is that platform for you. I hope through this show, you get your weekly dose of experiences, of knowledge, of things that help you think a little bit differently. And that this becomes the platform that helps you get that inspiration, but also get the inside info that you need to actually go out there and change the world in your own way. So if you have any questions about it, if you want to know more about the show or you want to speak about like specific topics, you can let us know in the show chat below and we'll try to pick it up as well as much as we can. So today's session is live. Make sure you have, if you have questions, you ask us and we'll try to answer it during the session too. And speaking of today's session, we have probably one of our most notable speakers who's actually joining us here today. And he's someone who's extremely inspiring. He um, was actually once an MBA student at the Wharton School. But our speaker is um, none other than Alfred Berkeley, the, ch uh, the chairman of Princeton Capital Management and vice chairman of Gentai Inc. So he's someone who was also um, previously appointed uh, the vice chair of NASDAQ stock market um, in July 2000 and served throughout uh, to, to July 2003. He was also president of NASDAQ from 1996 to 2000 as well. So before that, um, he was also a general partner at, uh, and at that point of time, uh, a managing director at Alex Brown & Sons, an investment bank. And he also served in many other noticeable positions, such as vice chairman and acting chairman of the President's National Infrastructure Advisory Council. He was a director of the World Economic Forum USA, was chairman of X, uh, XBRL US, uh, and so many other extremely notable organizations um, here in the US and also some across the world as well. So without further ado, let's welcome the one that only Mr. Alfred Berkeley to our virtual stage. Hello. I'm delighted to be here with you. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I hope you're having a good day. I know it's a little after dinner for you. Yep, well, 
Thank you for joining us. I think we're having a little bit of an internet bump. But uh, we'll just wait and see how it goes. But meanwhile, as we begin, uh, I think we can take a few minutes just to uh, restart the session and share some of uh, Mr. Alfred Berkeley's uh, most notable achievements. So other than being, um, I think, the co-president at, uh, sorry, the, sorry, the president of NASDAQ um, in the early 2000s, he also did many other um, extremely important things and extremely notable things. He's a director today at RealPage Inc., Security First Corp., Differential Dynamics Inc., uh, Cheapskate uh, Bay Outward Bound School. And he's also the board of the American Resilience Project, which produces documentaries on climate change and was a trustee of the Mathematical Science Research Institution. So other than that, he was also um, a member of uh, various boards and trustees to different universities and colleges across the US, um, most notably actually including um, uh, the John Hopkins University, uh, where he actually served on their Applied Physics Laboratory Board. He was a trustee of Allen University in Columbia, South Carolina, and also on the Board of Visitors of the School of Medicine of the University of Maryland. So with all of these extremely notable achievements, let's welcome back Mr. Alfred Berkeley. I'm glad to be here with you. The uh, frustrations of the internet are you can't live with it and you can't live without it. Yes, I completely agree. Oh my goodness. And you are someone who's actually seen the entire rise of the internet and the whole revolution it's brought upon us. So hopefully today's session doesn't make you feel like uh, you've made the wrong call with that, with all of our internet hiccups. So apologies on my behalf. No, you know, right after I graduated from Wharton, I went on active duty in the Air Force and got exposed to computing and it changed my life because I got very interested in computing and, and ended up spending my entire time as an investment banker and then as president of NASDAQ uh, do, doing things with technology. So I'm, I'm very, I'm very sympathetic to uh, the problem of showing the technology off in any way because it always seems to have a bump. But if you, as you look what's happened over the last 50 years, you can't get along without these computers either. They've raised yep, yep. standard living. And to a big extent, I think we have you to thank for the fact that we even have like, like such availability of computers and software. So thank you in advance. But like I feel like you've done so many amazing things that us as mere students today at the Penn campus can only dream to accomplish a fraction of those and change the world as much as you have actually. Did you know all of this when you were a student like at your time at Wharton that you would go on to accomplish all of this or that even before that when you actually were like a bachelor student like many of my friends and I are was this something that you had planned that you were going to take the technological revolution by storm and bring it no? No, not at all. I think uh, just a totally unplanned career and uh, a lot of serendipity, a lot of good luck. A lot of people have been very kind to me and helpful to me. I think that uh, the trick is I often have young people come to me and say, what can I do to plan my career? And I'll say, do a good job at whatever you're doing and your career will take care of itself. Okay, that's a very interesting way of putting it. Well, when you first started out, I think you did you you wanted to do a, like a bachelor's in English, right? How, how did you actually come like across that decision, and why start there? Anyway? Well, it's interesting. I heard a speech given by a man named Stuart Saunders, who was, at that point was chairman of the Pennsylvania Railroad, and he was talking about the power of a liberal arts education. My father was a physician, and I'd always thought I'd go into medicine, but that speech really changed my attitude and changed my life. So I think it's uh, very important to be able to get your ideas across. And that's one thing that uh, English helps you do. Okay. So liberal arts education, I think I and many others in the School of Arts and Science have already become your friends just for that em emphasis. Um, and like from there, you went on to do your MBA at Wharton. So why did we have the honor of like like having you on our campus? Like what, what made you decide to go into, uh, I think you, you had your degree in transportation, right? Next. Well, I was going to go in the Air Force on active duty, you know, so that led me to the transportation department at Wharton which helped me a lot because uh, because it was very rigorous and very structured and very uh, much attuned to the law of transportation, the Interstate Commerce Commission and the other regulatory aspects. That helped me when I actually got into the Air Force. But I, I went to Wharton because they, they accepted me. I uh, needed to, I, I, I had been hurt playing rugby at Virginia 
and I missed a, a semester of ROTC. So I called up the dean of the Wharton School and said to him that I needed to come to Wharton. He said, well, I'd like to meet you. And so we met and he said, come on. So I went and got my commission at St. Joseph's College on City Line Avenue while I was at Wharton, then deferred a year before going on active duty and finished my MBA. And of course, when I got on active duty, they thought I knew a lot because I had a Wharton MBA. I don't feel like I knew anything at the time, but it certainly helped my career. Well, well, as you mentioned earlier, that was the time where you were first kind of like exposed to the world of computing and like that whole like like industry of it when you were on active duty. How was it like stepping into kind of like the military, like such a huge organization as someone who was relatively new there after your time at Wharton and after your time um, having been a student prior to that and now into this whole new world in a way? Well, the military is all set up to take young officers in and train them. There's tremendous training capability. And I had a wonderful uh, senior master sergeant who took me under his wing. And I said to him, you know, sergeant, you've known more, you've forgotten more than I've ever known about what we're doing. And I'd like you to coach me a little bit. And he said, we're going to get along just fine. And, and uh, I, I listened to him and he took good care of me. Okay, very cool. And like at that point of time, how was it like, like, like learning about like, or how was the industry like at that point of time, like with the in, like introduction to computers and all of that, like, did that change like the military landscape at all? Well, what happened is we had computers that were being brought in to manage a number of different functions, but the biggest computers were either in the, the uh, radar systems uh, or in the supply system. And I was involved in the supply and logistics side of the Air Force. And what we were able to do was to get hands-on experience with the computers. And they had uh, all of 64K memory. So this is 64,000 little metal disks with wires running through them. So it was quite extraordinarily simple compared to what we're, what we're dealing with now. You got more power on a chip now than you had in biggest computers available at the time. But it was a great, it was a great, great training for me because the the magic of computing is is that software gets more and more complex and you can build on it each day. Each new programmer stands on the shoulders of the one before them, and it gets cumulatively better, and then it gets more than any one person can handle. So that's really powerful. Okay, very cool and. After your time um, at the military, you went on to actually um, go into the financial industry, which again is very different from a liberal arts education and then time in the military. It's, it's like you try to do something like completely different from what you've done before in a way. How do you actually start in that? Well, All right, I think we have a bit of a bump. I'll continue. Can you hear me? Yeah, now I can hear you. Go ahead. Yeah. Continue. So what happened when I got out of the Air Force is I went to S. Brown & Sons, which was a regional investment banking firm at the time, and the brokers kept asking me questions about which computer company they ought to buy for their clients. And uh, it led me to... Uh, concentrate full-time on computer software and that led to joining the trade association for the software companies and that led to meeting a lot of CEOs of software companies and that led to things like taking Microsoft public and Oracle public and most of the large companies that you've ever heard of uh, came public but nobody else Okay, I think we've got a little bump in the Wi-Fi again. But as we wait to continue, I think... Um...
yep. I think we'll just give it a minute to continue and um, for Mr. Uh, Berkeley to actually join us back again. But one of the things that I found extremely interesting about his story is that he started off at a time where computers were extremely new in a way, and he actually introduced computers, not just uh, to, um, or was the first person to learn about it, and not just brought these huge computer companies uh, to list in the stock market at that point of time, but he even introduced computers to very early investment firms. Uh, he even uh, introduced elements of computerization into NASDAQ at that point of time. So he's definitely the pioneer um, in this particular industry of like figuring out what's the next technology. And I'll wait a little bit more for him to join us back and um, be able to share his story on that uh, point of view in a sense. But one of the other, like he's also been an early investor in many of the technology companies that today has actually helped out uh, in a lot of this uh, tech revolution that we see today. So sorry, we lost you for a minute again. I guess the pros and cons of the digital world again. Sure, no problem at all. We'll just patch it together as we as we need to. The point I was making is that uh, very few people on Wall Street were interested in computer software. They didn't see any value in it. They were all interested in hardware, thinking that was where the where the value was. Money was flowing into IBM and the, what was called the bunch, Burroughs and, and others, all of whom are gone now, basically, except for IBM, maybe Unisys. Uh, but but uh, what happened is we thought the value was actually in the software. We were able to build a business that the rest of Wall Street didn't want to compete for. And then eventually, when they began to see the real benefits of software, the whole world changed and all of Wall Street got interested in technology and the rest is history. I must tell you that I didn't see as big a future as it actually happened, but I did see a big future because I knew it was hard to do the programming. I'd done some programming and knew that it was mentally challenging and, and uh, got cumulatively better. Those two things together uh, said there's value here. Okay, and you were also one of the early people who brought it into the, the companies that you were working and digitalizing, like I think um, Alex Brown and Sons as well, right? How, how did you go about convincing people that this was something that you had to switch to, this was something that you had to invest in and, and kind of like use for your work in a way? Well, the first thing we did was we bought our own computers. Uh, I brought one and a few of my partners, Dick Franio and a few others bought, bought uh, personal computers. Sometimes a Commodore to start, but but an Apple or a, or later an IBM. And when software like VisiCalc and then eventually Excel and the other tools became very useful, uh, it was pretty apparent people ought to get that personal productivity kicker that they can get from using technology. But the way we actually introduced it was I bought six computers and loaned them to the various departments, uh, but I didn't loan them to the partners. I loaned them to their secretaries. And they were using products like Word and WordPerfect. And then I went back six months later and said, well, you got to give up your computer now. I said, wait a minute, we can't give these up. I said, okay, well, I'm going to charge your department for them, buy, buy some new ones and do another six with other people. And we've kind of walked out uh, loaners all over the firm and, and the secretaries who actually knew how to, how to get the work done uh, loved them because word, word processing programs were really productive. Okay, that, that's very, very smart. And like, I feel like many times we try to convince people of something new and something great that you 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 just did the complete opposite. You're like, who needs this? How can like I support the work that they do through this? And, and it kicked off by itself. Like, how did you even learn how to do that? Or what was your thought process and like, even thinking about it that way? Well, I think you just have to listen to people. It's, it's not about telling them what to do. It's about listening to the people who know they've got a productivity problem or, or would be better off with a productivity tool. So it was pretty easy once uh, a few first early adopters in the secretarial group uh, showed off what they could do, run circles around everybody else, uh, then, then other people wanted it. And eventually it went up the pyramid and pretty soon you had uh, computers on some of the producers' desks and then some of the partners' desks and the rest is history. All right. And you definitely, I think, were the natural selection with all of your both, I think, experience in, in finding the right um, companies to, to help with their listing, to even digitalizing your own office in the early stages. So 
I think it's only natural that you became, I think, president and vice chairman at, at uh, NASDAQ um, when you did. So how, how did that experience actually begin? How did you start stepping into kind of like the other side of the stock market now being the team that runs NASDAQ in a way? Was that something that you expected or? I didn't expect it at all. I mean, Alex Brown and Sons had a very interesting approach to young young people coming into the firm. They, For example, the first board they put me on was the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra Board where they made major donations in town in Baltimore and basically told me, you know, get, go on the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra Board, pretty much keep your mouth shut. You can't hurt anything. Get some experience, learn how a big nonprofit works. So we did that. And then eventually they put me on the board of the NASDAQ stock market itself. And uh, again, that was to gain experience. And they were, they were taking some of the younger people that were come into the firm and were giving them relatively risk-free board seats to learn and learn and learn on. So it was a very sophisticated approach on the part of the older partners to get us out in this, get my crowd out into the community and doing things and learning and, you know, making mistakes in, in relatively safe places. Okay, very cool. And I feel like many times young people nowadays, even when given opportunities, we're not sure when to speak up or when not to speak it on the other extreme. How was it like for you at that point of time navigating kind of like the growing pains of a career? And what, what do you think made you so successful that you eventually were kind of became like president and vice chairman even of, of NASDAQ in a sense? Well, I think that, you know, the, the sunlight is your friend. Transparency is your friend. Honesty is your friend. Truth is your friend. So I always tried to keep my mouth shut unless I had something I thought was important that nobody else was mentioning. The other thing that I was taught by one of my associates was don't ever surprise anybody in a meeting. If you got something critical to say, talk to them about it beforehand, privately. You don't want to embarrass people. It's uh, the old hunter's adage, if you can't kill them, don't wound them. And, uh, you know, if you, people, if you embarrass somebody in public, they'll never forgive you and they'll never forget. So don't embarrass people in public. Talk to them in private. I've done that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. All right. All right. That's a very, very good take. And even while you were at uh, NASDAQ, in a sense, you one of the focuses that you had was to kind of make it more palatable for traditional customers. And I think you had this philosophy that the customer had to come before the broker. I think I read that in an article by Wharton magazine uh, before we set up this interview. That That's a very interesting like way of looking at things, which I think uh, was not so common as it is now back then. Right. Well, the real interesting com competition when I went on the NASDAQ board as an industry member and I looked at it as a computer services company, all the other board members looked at it as a regulator. And uh, it is a regulator. It was a regulator. That was before NASDAQ was split off from the NASD. But uh, it, it's, it's first and foremost a computer services company and it needs to put the interests of its ultimate customers in first place. Now, one of the things we did, which was great fun, is we created a brand. It used to be the National Association of Securities Dealers Automatic Quotation. The initials were NASDAQ. My mother said, what is a NASDAQ? <laughs> is there a verb in there anywhere? Is, there, you know, is that a noun? What is that? And uh, I remember telling her, well, it's, a, it's an acronym. But uh, Brian Holland, who worked with me uh, as a marketing guy, and we decided to make a brand out of it. And we did it through television advertising. I remember asking him on the first day I met him. I already knew him from the board, but uh, I remember asking him when we were working together for the first time, what's your advertising budget? And my good friend, Joe Hardiman, who, who brought me to NASDAQ from Alex Brown, who was running, running NASD at the time, and he was pretty tight with a penny. And uh, Brian told me that he had a $7 million advertising budget. And I said, well, let's double that and see what happens. So we doubled it to about 14 million and, and we used a lot of television. And then we doubled it again uh, to a little over 20 million, uh, just under 25 million. And we built the NASDAQ tower on Times Square and we put 13 desks in there for 13 television networks. And they basically uh, fill those slots or they lose them. If they don't use the slots, they lose the slots because other people want to use them. And that gave us about a thousand times more 
visibility in the market, more gross rating points, as the marketeers would say, than we were getting from spending our $25 million on uh, news and sports. So we looked at the market, we measured it, we said, uh, what is our market? Our market is households that have savings. Nobody's going to buy stock if they don't have savings. That was about 52 million households at the time. Aided awareness, where you're helping them, was about 18% of the market. So it was mainly professional people in that market that had uh, savings. And uh, we raised that through the television ads. We were the first people to ever run an ad that had a URL in it. Uh, at the end, where do you find a stock like Intel, NASDAQ.com? Where do you find a stock like Microsoft, NASDAQ.com? We took our top 12 trading companies, which accounted for about 50% of the business in the market, and built those 15 and 30 second ads around them with the CEO in the, in the, uh, in the ad. And the actual stock price is traced in the background. And we began to do something that was very important. Before I got there, we lost about 97 companies the year before I got there. Most of them were pretty big companies. After four years of television and putting the, putting the CEOs in the television ads and, and cutting prices, a whole, a whole bunch of dimensions to this strategy, but we cut that, uh, we recut the tests and said, what's the aided awareness now is 92% of the regulated market, the, the target market. So we, we changed that and that meant there were only about 23 small companies leaving. Revenues went from 325 million to about 800 million. At the same time, we cut the price of using the service substantially. I had a wonderful, wonderful partner who helped me with a lot of this, Richard Ketchum. He did, uh, he was the best regulator the SEC ever had in the market reg department. And he ran the regulatory side of NASDAQ and the, made all that smooth and work and got a lot of rules changed. I pretty much paid attention to keeping companies and attracting companies and the revenues were profoundly increased. So part of it was timing, part of it was the team. John Jacobs, who was our, in our team, developed the QQQ as, a, as an exchange traded fund. When the dot bust came and dot com bust came, I think we made more money from the QQQ than we did from trading. And uh, so we'd, we'd put another leg out and we had, an a financial instrument that was building our brand. I could go on and on. There were there's so many aspects of that. We cut the price of using the system from, uh, for, let's say, Merrill Lynch trading with Goldman Sachs from $5 to, to a couple cents per share. That is absolutely like like revolutionary. You actually came into NASDAQ and, and changed the whole landscape in a sense. Well, one of the, I'm sorry, go ahead. You know, you go ahead and ask your question. No, and, and like one of the things that you mentioned is that you had so many brilliant minds working with you in making this happen and so many amazing people in your team. How did you, and, and one of the things that I feel many people face is that they have amazing talent around them, it's just they don't know how to pull it together towards a very firm goal. And from the progress that NASDAQ made under your kind of like watchful eye, you can definitely see it went like exponentially to where it seemed before. And how do you bring together all of these amazing people around you to achieve that goal in a way? Well, I think part of it is, it is a, very important for you to understand that this was a real team effort, that I was the lucky beneficiary of a lot of Joe Hardeman's recruiting and Rick Ketchum's recruiting, John Jacobs recruiting, Doug Patterson's recruiting. The whole, the whole team came together, but the simple technique that I tried to use, particularly when I first got there, was to hold a weekly staff meeting where everybody around the table was asked what they had accomplished in the last week, what they wanted to accomplish in the next week, and who around the table they needed to help them accomplish that. So we went from a series of, of individual conversations between the manager and the CEO, the president or the chairman, uh, to a whole series of group discussions about how are we going to allocate the resources to get things done. So it was that trust and that openness and that transparency that uh, I think went a long way to team building. And then when you've got a team, things start happening that are very favorable. Okay. And despite Nasdaq being, oh, I think, like, a software like like the the place for i think all the biggest tech companies i think it was you also who implemented or brought in the idea that technology could be the way to kind of like 
solve or implement performance and policies uh, or solve these issues that were happening there. How was it like bringing tech or, or that aspect of technology to solve those issues at that point in time? Well, I mean, that's one of the most interesting things because technology was changing rapidly, faster than regulation was changing. So a lot of what we were doing was, was working with the SEC to be sure that we were bringing the regulations along. And a great example of that was when we allowed computers to talk to computers and to trade automatically. Remember before everything was at the pace of a human, a human trader or sales trader would get an order, they'd give it to the market maker, the market maker would execute it, time stamp it and put it in a system. Pretty soon you, you began to have computers that were doing the work and people say, well, let's let the computer talk to another computer to execute the trade. Well, that got to go be going faster than a human being could do it. And it caused a lot of angst on Wall Street and actually a lot of firms went out of business because they couldn't keep up with the technology or didn't want to keep up with the technology. So you saw some mergers and you saw some, some withdrawals by some of the older players. But the real trick there was working with the government, including the Congress and the Financial Services Committee and the Senate, uh, Senate Banking and Senate Financial and House Financial Services to say, how are we as a nation going to keep up with this technology and make these markets fair and stay fair? Markets are all about you know, who knows what, when do they know it, what can they do about it? And if you've got the computer jumping in so fast a human can't even blink to see an order entered and then canceled, uh, it's very hard for humans to keep up. And it took about 10 years for that to shake itself out and work itself out. But we've got very deep liquid markets now by and large, and we, uh, you know, it's it's much cheaper for people to trade and, and uh, Financial services industries have led the way in having computing bring prices down instead of profits up, even though profits are up at all-time records in the financial services community. Any of that make sense? No, 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 it does, it does. And, and I think it's something like even today people struggle with kind of like the pace that technology is accelerating and balancing it with the regulations, making sure that, that we as human beings can still to a, to whatever extent we can keep a watchful eye, control it, make sure that it doesn't go out of hand. And even recently in the news, that's something that I feel is something that that is constantly being brought up, is constantly being questioned, like like in all industries today, not just the financial service industry. You served for a while, or, or you served as the advisor to the president as well, which is not an easy feat. And you served as vice uh, chairman and acting chairman of the president's National Infrastructure Advisory Council. How did you go about thinking about all of these issues and, and putting it in a way that like literally the world leaders would, would be able to, to think about and implement uh, policies and things accordingly? Well, I was sitting at my desk one day and my secretary came in and said, it's Richard Clark from the White House on the phone. Well, I didn't know Dick Clark at the time, but he's a wonderful guy and he was thinking ahead. And he basically was trying to alert the, the administration at that point, the Clinton administration, to the threat of cybersecurity and cyber breaches. He was way ahead of his time, but he was right. And uh, he, we had uh, Larry Bickner, who worked at NASDAQ, a wonderful guy, was doing a morning call with uh, friends of his from his prior lives. I think he'd been at Ernst & Young. And he had a 7 a.m. call on week mornings with his friend at the NSA, his friend at the CIA, his friend at the FBI, his friend at the New York Stock Exchange, his friend you know, these are trust-based relationships. And Dick Clark had heard about those and wanted to codify them. And I said to him, look, I don't even know you, but you can't put a political appointee in one of these trust groups. They won't talk. So he said, well, let's build a FACA committee, a Federal Advisory Committee Act committee. There's a, there's a law about how committees are set up in the executive branch to advise President Clinton on, the, on these issues of infrastructure and cyber, cyber infrastructure in particular. So I was honored to help him set that up. And we got some of the usual suspects, uh, Craig Barrett from Intel and uh, the Akamai Group. And we had uh, DuPont and we had Mellon Bank and we had Union Pacific Railroad. We had all the major industries that were talking infrastructure, the water, the water industry. And... Uh, it, it, it worked beautifully. The president or a cabinet secretary in, in some cases would give us a problem to work 
we'd say who at the table knows the most about that and how do we staff it. We'd, we'd make recommendations to the president and we'd, we would keep our head down. We weren't trying to attract attention. We had open meetings, obviously, because the sunshine laws, but we didn't do things contentiously. We walked down the um, incremental step-by-step -step path to improve federal policies and public-private partnerships to get the ball moved. I worked on 22 projects in the 11 years I was there. I didn't work on all of them, but I was responsible for some of them and worked on worked uh, as a signatory on the ones that were staffed out. And we got quite a lot done. In fact, uh, Chairman Benny Davis from uh, Homeland Security Committee told us we got more done than any other FACA committee that he could find. So that was really from keeping our heads down and just doing the work. Okay. That is insane. And I and I think, as you said, 22 projects in 11 years and that just being you among the many others in the committee, that, that is a record number, I think. Well, there were 25 it's members roughly and, and we, you know, we got about two, two assignments a year. There wasn't, wasn't a formula to it, it's just sort of the way it happened. And we were usually able to um, give pretty good recommendations to the president about, I was told about third, about uh, 60%, 65% of all the recommendations we made either became policy or law or, or regulation. So that's pretty good record. That is a very, very, not only is that impressive, I think that's uh, at times hard to fathom that the work that you do directly or, or after maybe a few steps, but contributed to a lot of the policies and a lot of things that today's stand guard and regulate these many like uh, the, the like kind of like the infrastructure of an entire country in a way did that ever bother you when you <laughs> were working on your projects and thinking that oh my goodness this this the work we do has such a big impact how do i make sure i do this the best that i can because i think, I think, even, well, I think you do you do think that all the time when you're giving advice to the president of the united states you want to be right you don't want to you don't want to mess it up and you don't want it to be uh, when, you know, when I was there, we were extremely bipartisan and trying to take our selfish hats off and work for the good of the country. The other aspect of this is I, I learned that there are just tremendously good people working in the federal government and the state governments that we interacted with. And we get such a warped view of what they're doing when, when partisanship comes into it or the, the media gets an ax to grind. And what I found over and over and over again is that they're just really good people trying to figure these things out and trying to do it right. Okay. Yeah, very well said. And I think um, I've had the fortune of working a little bit with the ministries and where I'm from. And as you said, I feel like we often look at the top people, but in between, there's so many people who put their best, who, who really make show up every day and, and put in their heart, soul and love into whatever work that they do for the good of their country. So definitely, I think it helps to focus on them than anyone else or, or focus on working with them to get things done. Um, you didn't just serve like 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 to to empower the people in the U.S. alone. You were also at one point, I think, the director of the World Economic Forum USA, and um, you through that also created so much change and, and brought so much awareness to that. How did you even like like begin to start working at, at with the, with the World Economic Forum, which I think was a nonprofit at that point of time? And what was kind of like your objective going in there to, of the changes that you could make? I mean, that kind of like brings all of the world leaders and the major stakeholders across the globe into the conversation? Well, I think that uh, I was in, introduced to the World Economic Forum by the U.S. Ambassador to Switzerland at the time, uh, Faith Whittlesey. And uh, I went not knowing quite what it was about. And I realized that this was a very effective way to work on my NASDAQ uh, needs and job, which was to meet almost uh, the biggest and best, uh, almost half of the biggest and best NASDAQ international companies were there. So I just made one appointment after another to see them and it saved me a lot of trips all over the world. Um, and that was sort of my selfish reason for getting, getting interested. Then I realized that uh, what Klaus Schwab has done is quite remarkable. And I'll give you a couple of examples. One of them was uh, I had, uh, I heard uh, Nelson Mandela say that Schwab had saved his life by drawing attention to him when he was imprisoned in South Africa and probably would have been killed uh, had not uh, 
folks in the World Economic Forum, and particularly Klaus Schwab, have drawn attention to Mandela's uh, existence and his and his position and his positions plural. Uh, so that's one thing. Then, then I looked at things like when the Gujarat uh, earthquake occurred, how the WEF community united to get a lot of aid over there pretty quickly. So I said to myself, this is worth spending some time on. These are people trying to do the right thing. There's all the media flying back and forth about the elitism of the WEF, but, but what Klaus has done is to be able to accumulate a remarkable uh, convening power and to get people to come and commit to things and to do things. And he just chips away at, at the good side of many, many problems and making them better and better and better, fixing them. And these human problems don't go away. They just, they morph a little bit, but you got to keep working. You know, better get it done. And, uh, and Klaus has done a remarkable job of that. Absolutely, like like very well said. And I think that even today, the work that they do is out of this world, literally at times. And I think it, it's gone and it's helped so many nations by, by, as you said, having that power of kind of like converging all of the of these um, different companies, different individuals, different powers towards specific causes, towards tackling where the help needs to be done. As someone who is stepping in to kind of like uh, becoming the director of this whole organization, what were the things that you felt were the priorities that you needed to tackle that the organization in general needed to focus on? Well, I had a very specific request from Klaus. Uh, I got very involved with the U.S. board when I uh, resigned from NASDAQ, retired from NASDAQ. Um, so my focus was getting the U.S. board up and going and, and getting it populated with people that could make a difference. I was not the full-time person there. I was just a member, but I was an early member. And uh, that was a good challenge. We needed to set up an American board because the U.S. Treasury was becoming concerned that uh, we were supporting a foreign nonprofit uh, and that people wanted to deduct their expenses and make donations and stuff. And we needed a, we needed a legal mechanism uh, to deal with the U.S. tax structure. Then what happened was the World Economic Forum changed its legal status and became more like the International Red Cross, which has some uh, ability to uh, go across borders without all the tax implications and to be a worldwide uh, donee. So um, it, was, it was a natural progression for the forum as it got bigger and more important to change its status from a local Swiss nonprofit to a global non-governmental organization. Okay, very cool. And you are also someone who, who has, I think, helped out in so many, like not only social causes, but so many uh, education like uh, causes as well. I think you, you sit on the board of many universities. You are a trustee of John Hopkins University as well as uh, on the board of kind of like the Applied Physics Laboratory. I think you're also a trustee at Allen University and um, you were on the board of visitors of the School of Medicine at uh, the University of Maryland and many others as well. Do you, did, like, why do you have like such a, like a focus on education in a way and making sure that these organizations have the access to your experiences, your thoughts and as well? Is it like, is there a specific reason why you felt like, okay, education is important and something that needs to be supported? Well, I actually, I was blessed to have a wife who was deeply involved in education and, and was educating people in Baltimore who would otherwise not have gotten educated. You, you, the more you dig in, the more we dug into things at the National Infrastructure Advisory Council, the more we came back to fundamental educational issues. The population can, can get focused, it can get energized, it can get motivated, and it can get accomplishing things if it's educated. It, it's just amazing how all these advances we've got, like vaccines, which have been just remarkably quickly developed, or the electronics revolution, the telecommunications revolution, what, we're, what we have to do on climate change and, and, and how we have to use technology to do that, all requires education. And it goes right back to the basics. And, and I just learned that from my wife, who's been who devoted her whole life to 
essentially inner city education with remarkable curriculum approach and and success. Every child that came through her schools could read at the end of first grade. So I think we have another little internet bump in a way. But as I said, Mr. Berkeley has contributed so much to like education in general and so many different universities that have actually benefited from his um, his membership on their boards, uh, his experience. And it's just amazing to hear how that continued work is happening, like even today as he advises and uh, appears on shows like this so that he can share his experiences with newer students in um, different parts of the world even. Yep, and I think the other thing that um, he's also uh, very much involved in is not just um, education in general, but the future of education in a sense, or sciences that um, are cutting edge in a way. So as I mentioned earlier, he's part of kind of like the applied physics laboratory at John Hopkins University. He, on, in the University of Maryland, the School of Medicine, he's also actually the vice chair of the evaluation committee of the National Medal of Technology and Innovation among many other um, amazing and notable achievements. And he also served as a member of the Public Affairs Advisory Group for the Na Director of, Na of the National Science Foundation. And just like that, I feel, yeah. So uh, sorry again for that. I think education was too important of a topic that everyone's uh, collective uh, interest was kind of like had to be put on hold so that we can have a moment of anticipation to your answers. You know, I just came back on and I didn't hear the first half of that. <laughs> no worries, no worries. But yeah, so like education is definitely something that's extremely important. And you are someone who also looks like, like uh, also is very involved in kind of like the intersection between, um, I think, technology and um, uh, innovation as well. You were the vice chair of the evaluation committee for the National Matter of Technology and, and Innovation. And I think you were also like the subcommittee of the future of science committee for the secretary of energy. Why this emphasis on kind of like, like innovation and, and energy and all of these new sciences in a way is like, like how do you feel it contributes towards like the general public's growth and awareness and also the growth of like the nation? Well, I think that the reality is, is that uh, being president of NASDAQ uh, was of interest to a lot of people who were promoting a particular issue. Uh, it was uh, Phil Bond, who was uh, Undersecretary of uh, Commerce and responsible for the Patent Office, which really manages the Evaluation Committee for the National Medal of Technology and Innovation, uh, appointed me. And I think we, I think he was as interested in the NASDAQ title as he was me. We've gotten to be great, fun, great friends in the meanwhile. But uh, uh, when people think of technology and they want a voice for it, NASDAQ is a great uh, flag to fly under. So I was pleased to do that and I tried to pick my shots. I was honored to be asked essentially by Mike Bloomberg uh, when he was chairman of uh, the Hopkins board to join that board and later to join the New York City Financial Services Committee. Uh, I went on the Allen University board uh, because I was asked to by uh, another fellow who was on it. And they, it's a creature of the uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church. And uh, uh, they have wonderful folks doing wonderful work. And it was a little bit different. And I thought maybe I could be helpful to them. Uh, they've done a great job. Uh, the School of Medicine at the University of Maryland is just great fun for me because it keeps my toe in the water on scientific things going on in medicine. And I'm not very smart on this stuff, but I love having the coaching and the training that I'm able to get through those board meetings. And every, every meeting has something interesting happening. And I feel like many people now feel like if I'm like in the financial industry, that's my focus. I should only focus on the tech or the, the, like the innovations in that industry. What benefit does it bring to kind of like dip our toes in kind of like what's happening in other places, medicine, science, uh, physics, energy? Do you think it's, there's a benefit to it? 
Well, I think that most boards need different types of skills, and, and I've usually been asked to go on a board to fill a financial-related slot. I've spent my career in the financial services industry. Uh, you know, they will typically have other people, uh, depending on the industry it is, uh, filling other slots. They're not necessarily named for, you know, I'm not the financial services guy, but I'm there to be helpful on those things I know something about. And I think a big piece of being effective on a board is not trying to know something about things you don't know anything about. Uh, you, I mean, I'm interested in listening, but I don't want to be uh, a false, uh, arrogant voice talking about things I know very little about. So I'm pleased to talk about things I feel like I do know about. And the older I get, the less I know. So that's uh, helpful as well. And really, I think I don't think the less you know, the older you get, but I feel, but all right. But let, I think. Let me put it the other way. There's, I, the older I get, the more I know there's a lot less, there's a lot that I don't know about. <laughs> okay, maybe that's true. And maybe that's some wisdom the rest of us should probably apply as soon as we can as well. Um, but one thing that, that I did notice that you have also helped out in bringing awareness about um, this climate change. I think you also um, were someone who, um, actually, and this is actually quite interesting, but you also were part of the board of the American Resilience Project, which produces documentaries on climate change. And I think that you are someone who we've seen from your your story in a way is very good at calling things before they happen and, and kind of like, like being in the right place at the right time to create awareness about things, whether it was tech. And I think now even on the topic of climate change, uh, why did you even decide to kind of like support initiatives that, uh, that that emphasize on the awareness of it? Is that something that you think we should all start thinking about a lot more in depth? Well, I think that came out of uh, relationships I built at the World Economic Forum. Michael Moeller was number two at the United Nations. He was what's called the director general, He's the administrative uh, chief operating officer, if you will. And I met him over the years uh, through a man named Roland Schatz, who runs a company called Media Tenor in, in uh, Switzerland. And uh, they, they made me aware of the fact that the Millennial Development Goals launched in 2000 had failed pretty miserably. Nothing much came out of them. And they relaunched in 2014 these uh, Sustainable Development Goals of the United Nations. And that's 17 goals, about 169 uh, sub-goals, sub targets, they call them. And they're trying to figure out how to take on some of these huge problems by dividing them into bite-sized chunks that you can actually do something with. And I thought that was a really pretty important and uh, a breakthrough in understanding. Michael Muller and Roland Schatz kind of brought this to the world. And it's now become uh, a very de rigueur part of people's thinking that we need to do something about climate change. The fact that the weather has been punctuated by these incredible storms, and I saw pictures of polar bears dying in the, in the ocean with no ice as recently as today, uh, brings it all home. And I think we've got to do something about it. And, and uh, I've got the ability to draw people's attention to uh, some of these issues occasionally, and I try to do it. No, you definitely do, and thank you. I think for all of your like, like support in in solving these global issues. You you are someone who has been extremely successful in the for profit industry, but also has had such a significant impact in creating awareness about all of these, um, these these social issues or kind of like these community issues that we've got to start tackling uh, as kind of like part of a citizen of this world in a way. So thank you for all your kind of like contribution in drawing issues and creating awareness and ensuring that people know about these things as well. And you've seen a lot of people, again, in companies, you, you are on the board of some of the largest um, uh, companies that are out there, you, you invested in many of them, and also in, a, in lots of social projects in a way that, that also go on to create huge impact. So for many of them, as we wind down kind of like our conversation today, I feel like many of our audience members want to do something with their lives and maybe don't know where to start in a way. In your experience, when someone embarks on a venture or a project or on something that they really want to achieve, whether it's creating a million dollar business in the tech industry or whether it's going out there and solving a huge chunk of this world problems, what do you think is the factors that make or break someone in their journey of achieving that success? 
Well, I think there are two things. I think you need to be fundamentally honest with the people you're dealing with. I don't think you get very far in life if you're not transparent and committed to the truth. And I also think <clears throat> I have a philosophy I got from my father, which is if it's high marginal value to you and low marginal cost to me, I should do it every time without asking. And um, so I, if I, many people have come to me with suggestions that were very important to them, and if it was, if it was something that I could do relatively straightforwardly, often an introduction or a recommendation, uh, I'm glad to do that. Very cool. And final question for today, in a way. You've had so much success in so many different things that honestly, it's a bit jarring to think at one point of time you were also on the same campus as probably many of our viewers were today, and that you've gone on to have such an extensively like 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 um, like like brilliant career in a way. So for all of us who probably are on campus right now and are still figuring out what we what we probably want to get into, or what path lies ahead for us, what is your advice for all of us confused college students right now, hoping to make our own journey? Well, I'm not sure I could hear all that because you broke broke up a little bit. <clears throat> but I think that the right answer is is that. All right. Well, I think your final words must be very important that we have a little internet break as well. But I think that today's discussion has been extremely insightful to me at the very least on so many different topics um, from Mr. Berkeley's experiences and also from the things that he's done in his time in the financial sector, in his time in the social sector as well, uh, that I think that there's something that all of us can take away from it in the various state areas that we want to embark on and the various things that we want to try as well. So as we wait for him to kind of like deliver his final words, maybe um, if you guys have any questions, you can also drop it in the chat and we can also take them uh, before we end today. And again, if there's any questions we aren't able to tell, we aren't, we're unable to take before the end of today, you can let us know in the chat below and we'll also be able to um, pick them up whenever we can and hopefully give you guys some answers back during one of our next sessions as well. But today has been absolutely brilliant of a session. I think there's so much uh, that I've learned personally from it. And I hope that all of you as the audience can, uh, are also able to relate and uh, learn a little bit more about something that you maybe didn't get before this. So whether it's um, in whatever industry that you choose for in a way as well. So yeah, sorry. Final words before we conclude our session today for our college students, the message for them. <laughs> I can't hear you. All right. Um, could you hear me now? Yeah, that's better. All right. So just before we conclude for today, any final messages for all of our lost and confused college students out there? Well, I think you just keep doing a good job at the job you're given to do and uh, be honest with people and always try to help the other person. All right. Well, thank you so much. I apologize once again for the errors in our Wi-Fi signal and whatever shortcomings that we've had, but it's been amazing to talk to you and get your story here. I think that it has so much value and one interview does not do you enough justice in a way, but thank you so much for spending your time with us. Well, thank you for having me and I'm not... Okay, so with that, I think we'll conclude our session of Changing Reality for today. Thank you so much to our audience once again for tuning in. Um, so you've got that final message. You've got lots of amazing things that you can learn from from today. And I hope that today's session has been as <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. I think I'll you just the last part again. <laughs> I just came back. Yeah, so yeah, like, okay. um, anyway. Thank you very much for having me. I hope it worked satisfactorily for you. No, no, it was. It was. It was amazing. And I was just telling our audience that that I've learned so much and hopefully they're able to take away as much as I did from today's session too. 
So if you guys have any questions, let us know in the chat. But if not, thank you guys for joining today's session of Changing Reality. I had a blast. And if you enjoyed today's session, see you again next Thursday at 10 p.m. ET. Bye. You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio.